0: The following podcast is a dear media production i'm dr deepika chopra the optimism doctor and this is looking up a place where you can expect to find raw transparent storytelling listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism resiliency and authentic joy from artists athletes experts and many more The most dangerous toxin, deadly, deteriorating, detrimental, immune-compromising, disadvantageous. Literally, this thing can kill you. I'm talking about stress. Well, I'm actually talking about how we commonly hear stress described. What if I told you that not only could aspects of stress be beneficial, but maybe, just maybe, by the end of this episode, you actually may start to consider stress your friend. I didn't say best friend, but yeah, I did say friend. Historically, stress research has been pretty much all negative, and I'm in no way discounting the very unhealthy and oftentimes detrimental aspects stress can have on our bodies and minds. But what if just for a moment, you could separate whether the stress itself is causing the harm or our perception of it? A study tracking 30,000 adults in the United States for eight years found that people who experienced a lot of stress in the previous year had a 43% increased risk of dying. But that was only true for the people who held a belief that stress is harmful to their health. People who experienced a lot of stress but didn't actually view stress as harmful were no more likely to die. In fact, they had the lowest risk of dying than anyone in the study, including those who had experienced very little stress. So that got our guest on today's episode thinking. Can changing how you think about stress actually make you healthier? Well, science says yes. In a study out of Harvard University, participants were put through a social stress test, and then they were taught to entirely rethink their stress responses as helpful. So the pounding heart rate, see that as preparing you for action, That fast, shallow breath, oh, that's totally normal, just getting more oxygen to your brain. What they found was that the participants who learned these new ways to view their stress as helpful and positive signals for your body to rise up to a challenge or seek out support were less stressed out, less anxious, more confident, and wait. The most surprising thing was their physical response to stress changed as well. In typical stress responses, your heart rate goes up, I mean way up, and your blood vessels constrict. That is a bad thing. It's one of the reasons that chronic stress is threatening to our cardiovascular health. But in this study, the people who viewed stress as helpful even though they were experiencing stress, their blood vessels stayed relaxed even while their heart pounded. The truth is, we all will experience stress. Stress is a response to life, but what if instead of trying to avoid the big bad wolf, we actually just, I don't know, invited him to dinner on our terms? I'm beyond excited to introduce you guys to my guest on Looking Up episode number one, Kelly McGonigal. She is a Stanford University health psychologist, a best selling author, a speaker, a movement educator, and an animal rights activist. In her latest book, The Joy of Movement, she explores why physical exercise is a powerful antidote to the modern epidemics of depression, anxiety, stress, and loneliness. When I was in my early 20s, I had this silly response to any stressful situation. It would either make people laugh or really annoy them. But whenever I was faced with something bothersome, I used to say, who cares, let's dance. And thank goodness for Kelly, because she just totally legitimized my silly little saying and helped me realize that it's been one of my greatest tools all along. So who cares? Let's dance and learn how to make stress our friend.
1: I'm Kelly McGonigal. I'm a health psychologist who specializes in the mind-body connection. And I am passionate about leveraging the latest science to help people be healthier and happier and strengthen communities. I also am a group movement instructor. My sort of like secret passion is teaching group dance and yoga and fitness classes.
0: Where are you calling in from right now? What part? Palo Alto. Oh, okay. Okay. So you're up north.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've been sheltering in place for three months now. How are you? <sighs> you know. I know. I mean, it could be worse. Are you, you're in LA, right?
0: Yeah. I'm in LA. I feel like it's like the question I want to ask everyone, but it's almost become a question that's just like laughable or like <laughs> just every single day that goes by, like to ask how are you just seems... Well, I don't know, we need to come up with a new question that has the same sentiment, but somehow in the question just like acknowledges everything.
1: So are you one of those people who has come to optimism because it's your natural temperament and you're embracing it? Or have you sort of carefully cultivated a more optimistic approach?
0: I don't believe there's humans that are like, Always positive. And I always tell people when I'm speaking, like, I'm like, if you know someone that says that, like they're either not a real human, they're an Instagram feed, or they're visiting our planet from somewhere else. (laughs) But what we know about humans are we experience the full range of emotions. And actually, like what I love about your work, and I cannot wait to like dive into so much of it, is that you talk a lot about resiliency too, and the idea of utilizing some of the emotions and experiences that are less than ideal that for so long, we may have just kind of dubbed as really negative and harmful as something that can actually help us and a point of growth. And so that's resiliency and that's building optimism. And that's why I'm just super excited to talk to you. Yes. (laughs) Okay. But before we like get into all of it, the way that looking up the podcast is formatted is I like to ask everyone a series of rapid fire questions. there. A nice way to kind of get a little intimate and get to know my guest more than just what you do for a living and which is amazing, but also just something that makes you who you are and a little bit about your personality to connect us. Love it. Okay, great. Is there a book that has changed your life or has changed the way you live your life that you read? Or if not a book, it could be a piece of advice that you have been told.
1: My favorite book is Long Quiet Highway by Natalie Goldberg. I read it for the first time when I was in graduate school and it's a book about Natalie's relationship with her Zen teacher and Zen has also been an important part of my life. What I loved about the book is it's a really honest reflection the value of the teacher student relationship and the contributions that teachers make to their students' lives across the lifespan from like your elementary school teacher to your meditation teacher. It takes a really honest look at grief and loss. And the reason that that book I think really changed my life is it's an example of one of the reasons I admire Natalie Goldberg so much. She's a writer and a teacher who is really honest about life experience. And so this is something I've sort of held as an ideal that I have been working toward my whole life to figure out how to to look at human experience, talk about it honestly, but with such a sort of love for the reality of it that it can it can make you almost feel hopeful even in the midst of difficult situations. So I highly recommend Long Quiet Highway.
0: I actually have not read that. And I that's, this is a question I love because it also selfishly just gives me my own way of making a book list. <laughs> People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. What comes to mind?
1: People think I am really happy all the time. And actually, you know, I've struggled with anxiety my entire life. And actually, I wrote about this in one of my books because I actually had a student once literally stop me in the street. She, was, she took my dance classes at Stanford. She stopped me on the street and burst into tears saying, literally, she said, I'm so, I'm so unhappy. I'm so miserable. I'm so lonely. And you are so happy all the time. How do you do it? My inner experience is not that. But of course, she only saw me in the moment when I was most happy. Like I I started teaching group movement because it was when I felt connected and I could celebrate life and feel joy and not be a total, you know, mess of difficult thoughts and feelings. I've actually had that sort of projection many times throughout my life from people who only see me in either a public setting or in the the settings where I, I get to be that version of myself.
0: I love that that is something that came to you from one of your students? Because I think a lot of people can resonate with that just even from like social media or make presumptions or assumptions about you for what you do. Like I, yes, I get that all the time. So much of optimism is resiliency and without struggle, there's no resiliency. And so I think that's so important and so big for people to know that, you know, most of the time people are seeing these little tiny mini slices. And I think what's interesting is that you said that, You know, not from a social media point of view, but that this person was seeing you in when you experienced something that was the most joyful for you.
1: So funny because of course, maybe you've had this experience too, is that all research is me-search. And so I've carefully crafted a life where I have gotten to spend time with the science that is my medicine and the ideas that, that are my medicine and the activities that are my medicine. But if people only get to see the part where I've gotten able to teach those practices or share those ideas, right? They missed the whole part of the journey where it was me like desperately trying to understand the idea to deal with, you know, my own situation.
0: Yeah, like n- not being able to see the full story and how you got there. Okay, when is the last time that you cried?
1: You know, I can think of lots of examples in the last week. So I almost always cry when I'm listening to NPR and they have like Storycore, I might be listening to All Things Considered, and someone will come on and just like, okay, so people talking about their, human experience moves me to tears all the time. I'll you know, i cry at a well-crafted commercial also. So sometimes I moved to tears in a workout, doing a body combat workout and singing along to the song while doing a Muay Thai track that is about just like not giving up. And it just felt so good to do that movement and to be singing those lyrics and to sense my body alive in effort, to my heart pounding and sweating, that I was moved to tears.
0: I love that and I resonate with that so much. As a teenager, I used to cry from like the wind blowing in the trees. (laughs) And I still remember that. And I would like write about it, but just like nature, and I'm totally a crier at the human experience. My husband is actually quite similar. And so we both like when our son does something like sweet, which is like all the time, he called me his princess the other day and it made me tear up. Or if he like gives my my husband like a big hug, he'll my husband will get like teary-eyed. I feel like the more I'm really busy and chaotic though in the world. And like the last few months have been that way. Like I have lacked that because you do build up this sort of almost like a callous because it's like survival. And I know that I'm like doing well actually when I'm able to be moved into tears by things. And I'm probably like burned out or not doing too well when I'm not. So that's interesting.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good metric to pay attention to. Are you crying at, you know, the commercials or your son calling you princess? You know, one of the clear signs of burnout is cynicism. And I think that actually it's not a malevolent cynicism that people like, I hate humanity, I refuse to be moved. But, you know, part of what cynicism is, it's just a filter people believe makes them less vulnerable to having to, you know, be moved by suffering their own or others. And sometimes when things get very, very intense, people aren't trying to be cynical in a negative way or like a hostile way. That's just sort of something that the internal setting changes as a defense mechanism. It's actually one of the things that I've worked so hard in my research is actually to figure out how to keep that dial low in people who are at high risk for burnout to stay open and not get burnt out or become cynical.
0: I have like definitely dealt with a lot of that. Definitely a, a highly sensitive individual and I always have been since I was a kid. You know, I didn't go to school for 2 weeks after the Titanic came out. <laughs> the movie. <laughs> My parents would shield me from movies of like unrequited love or people that couldn't be together or human hardship, but like, it was okay for me to watch like Scarface because that didn't like make me miss school. But the other stuff I was shielded from. That's really interesting. I mean, like it would derail me. And then like, I thought, you know, as I got into psych so much later, it was not, like I said, a linear path. The one of the only things that I thought, or I was scared was like, how could I do this if this is, but it actually was amazing. It really did teach me how to sort of still be able to feel And not be completely derailed. But what I think is so interesting, what you're talking about, the idea of the cynicism and related to burnout, is I really experienced this like for the first time when I became a new mom. I remember I'd be watching something with my husband, and he would, you know, do the thing we usually do, which is cry at like a well crafted commercial. And I would literally have to change the channel. Like I didn't wanna see it because I was like, I don't have the ability. I don't have any of that right now. Like I only have enough to survive and have my child survive because I am breastfeeding around the clock and I have no sleep and I was recovering from a C-section and everything was just like survival. I didn't have, like almost like inside, I knew I didn't have it in me to like go there. So I would shield myself from it. And he's like, I've never seen this before. And I did it for like months until finally, I think just naturally, I kind of let everything back in and it was definitely at a point where I had a better handle on things but I'm feeling that again right now which is I never really put the two together and thought of it that way but I'm definitely feeling that right
1: now as well. This is such an important thing for people to bring awareness to and figure out how to navigate for themselves because a lot of people are feeling that way now about everything that's going on in the world and there's such a fine balance between figuring out okay this is a healthy defense mechanism this is my body and mind sort of protecting me and conserving my energy for what matters most or the roles and relationships in my life where I can really make a difference. That sort of healthy self-care or sort of targeted, you know, prioritization versus the kind of cocooning where you start to get the sense that I can't deal with anything and trying to avoid and withdraw and the sense of actually feeling almost like inadequate to your life. And what is that? What is that balance? I think it's constantly changing to know that we have we have the capacity to engage, and also we need to like be strategic and listen to ourselves and our intuition about how and when and where to engage so that we don't completely collapse
0: a hundred percent. And that intuition piece is so important. Another thing that I teach and talk about so much, but when it comes to yourself, you know, we don't all, we're not always so great about treating ourselves as we are, especially in this profession. My next question is three words. How would you have described yourself as a teenager in just three words?
1: Artistic, too much, extra, I guess is what we would say now, (laughs) and competitive. Which is funny because I'm not at all competitive now. Where did you grow up? Morristown, New Jersey, which is literally right across the river from Philadelphia.
0: I gathered a little like East Coasty.
1: Yeah. I know. It's it's funny. On the, when I go back to the East Coast, I feel like I'm right in my element, but people are like, why do you smile so much? I'm like, <laughs> oh, 20 years in California, I do complain a little less. I still complain more than the California <laughs> norm, I think.
0: What brought you to California?
1: Stanford for graduate school. I did a lot of my graduate research on optimism specifically because I'm not an optimist. And I was really curious about how optimism works and what his benefits are. I always say
0: to everybody, like I'm an optimism doctor, but I am not the most optimistic person. And if you were to talk to me right now in the middle of a pandemic, I could really illustrate why. Because I, first of all, don't believe that people are either optimists or pessimists. I believe that we are on a continuum. And for some of the aspects of our life, it's easier to be optimistic, and other ones, it's a lot harder. For me, optimism really means resiliency. It's not about being positive all the time, but I'm sure you know that. I want to just jump right in to stress. I'm sure some of the listeners will have already seen, but if you haven't, you have a wildly popular, very, very widely watched TED Talk called How to Make Stress Your Friend. And if that's not like a hook in, I don't know what is, but I love this. And something that I really wanted to ask you about that you kind of start the talk with is you sort of say that you have changed your mind about stress and you go further to say that you actually feel like you've been teaching about stress being sort of this big bad wolf and the enemy for so long. And you actually have a confession to make and it's that maybe you're wrong. And why did you change your mind about stress? And, you know, what does that mean? Tell us.
1: So I was just having a conversation with my husband yesterday about how one of my values is cognitive flexibility. I really want to be right so I can be of use rather than feel like I'm right so that I don't have to deal with the discomfort of having been wrong and having done harm. So, you know, one of the reasons I gave the TED Talk is just, hey, let's model that. Like everyone else in psychology and medicine, I was trained to believe that stress was the thing you go to when you are trying to explain why anything else is bad. So, you know, like, why is losing your job bad for your health? Stress, because stress kills you. You know, why is getting divorced bad for your health? Stress, because stress kills you. Why is like life bad for your health? It's stress and stress is, it's always like the thing that you you just jump to because it's so readily accepted. And yet, of course, Hanselia also described like the grandfather of stress research describe stress as what happens in your body when you need to adapt or respond to life. And so there's something inherently problematic if what happens in your body when you need to respond or adapt to life is toxic and the thing that is keeping you from being healthy and happy. So the reason I, I decided to publicly change my mind, it actually came from teaching in Psych 1 at Stanford. And I was taking over, there's a very famous stress researcher who'd given the stress lecture for years and years. And I'd always watched him come in and deliver this talk, which is essentially stress will kill you. It will kill your brain cells. It will make you impotent. It will destroy your life. And he's a great scientist and he's very convincing. And that was the stress lecture in Psych One. And so when I took it over, I started sort of doing a version of that, my own version. I gotta tell you, when you're on stage and you're looking at hundreds of undergraduates, stress out undergraduates, and you see their faces and they're like, you're telling them-
0: Yeah, their exact experience that they're feeling right now is killing them.
1: (laughs) While I was giving this lecture every quarter, some new research started coming out. It wasn't yet called the stress mindset effect. It was earlier than that. So we're talking like 2010, maybe 2009. How you think about stress can interact with stress to change what happens in your body, what happens in your brain, the emotions you feel, how well you perform under pressure. And even eventually research showing it can predict things like, whether or not you develop heart disease or how long you live. And so I started testing out, like what happens if I tell my undergraduates that yeah, stress doesn't feel great. It has some of these harmful things. But also here's an interesting study that shows that when students who were taking a really important exam, when they chose to accept their anxiety and stress and believe that it could actually help them perform, that it was normal and natural, they didn't have to be perfectly calm, that stress is what arises in your brain and body when something you care about is at stake. It's your body trying to help you rise to the challenge and you can just get on with it. Like, don't worry about it. That they do better. They have a stress response that is physiologically healthier that's linked to immune health and cardiovascular health, which is not what people typically think stress as being linked to. Anyways, so this, after the first time I snuck that research in, like a little 10 minute thing in the lecture, first time I ever got emails from undergraduates saying, thank you, that lecture helped me. I was like, hmm, maybe I'm onto something. And so I started systematically testing out what happens when you take a different point of view and you share with people who are dealing with a stressful situation they did not choose for themselves and cannot walk away from or want to do things in life that are difficult but meaningful and therefore will be stressful. What if you talk about stress in a different way and you talk about the natural human capacity to activate strengths like empathy and courage? and growth in times of stress, that humans have more ways of responding to stress than fight or flight, that we have biological instincts, including connecting and reaching out to others, and resilience. And they're all part of your stress repertoire. And what I found is through direct experience that these messages were more helpful, more useful, gave people hope, supported engagement with life. And so that was all happening before the TED Talk and so the ted talk was was me just trying to you know share that and that do like kind of a mea culpa like i'm sorry for everyone i told that stress was inherently bad and therefore if your life is stressful you're doomed
0: like you said stress is something that all of us go through it is a response to life and it means we're living i think what makes that so popular even amongst your students or people that would say that that really helped them or even the people that are watching the TED Talk is because it's something that everyone can connect to. Every undergraduate is stressed, every single one of them. I mean, it's like at an all-time high in your life during undergraduate to be stressed.
1: You have so little control. I find it so interesting as people get older, they lose empathy for why being young is so stressful. That at that age, it's not just exams, right? These are people who don't yet know if anyone will ever love them. These are people who don't know if they're going to have any kind of financial security in their lives. Young people are dealing with so much and so little control over it because as a student, you're constantly being told what to do, how to do it, when to do it, and evaluate it. And it's a very stressful time, even if on the outside it looks like you don't have a lot of problems. Even just being a student is stressful, and then you add everything else that young people are dealing with. It's so
0: easy for us to say, oh, if I just knew what I knew now, I would have I should have done X, Y, and Z differently. And why did I think my life was so tough? I mean, I wouldn't have cried on the couch when I had that breakup as a teenager, how stupid. But like, we forget what we were really going through and everything was such a big deal. Then there were big challenges that we had emotionally that now we know something that may erase that, but we're the same person and we don't know what's happening 10 years from now or five years from now. And that scares us too.
1: One of the things that we know about stress is that when you ask people, how are you dealing with the most stressful thing in your life right now? The most common thing people say who are middle-aged or older is all of the strengths I've acquired through the difficulties I went through in my past. And again, also, you know, that's something that accrues over time. And when you are younger, you don't necessarily have a narrative of yourself yet where you really understand how you get through things. And you might have a sense that you can. But as we get older, we really start to have a sense of this is how I get through difficult things. These are the people in my life I can rely on. And so much of being young is figuring out, is it okay to ask for help? Who will support me? Am I allowed to have these emotions? Am I going to have a redemption story in this situation?
0: I, especially during this time, like so many of the talks I'm giving are explaining to people that some amount of anxiety is actually really helpful. And it's it's good for you. It's not all bad. Of course, it's on a continuum and it depends how it's impacting your life. And we need anxiety and that's why it's there.
1: And, and if you think that you shouldn't experience it, people's coping strategies start to center around getting rid of uncomfortable feelings in the moment that they're happening. And you, you see things like turning to substances or you know just basically avoidant coping almost all of the most self-destructive behaviors and habits and addictions that people develop, they originate as an attempt to escape from feeling bad. You know, one of the studies that I mentioned in my book on stress that shocks people, researchers interviewed women who continued to drink high levels of alcohol during their pregnancy, which of course people are supposed to know is not good for your pregnancy. And what they would say is, Well, it's what gets rid of the stress and stress is the really toxic thing. So at least, you know, me and my baby won't be stressed. And I like, I thought like this is where you logically get to if you believe that at its essence, stress is the most toxic thing. And so almost anything else you do that reduces your feelings of stress is better than having to feel that you know i'm not judging the women who said that i think it's it's actually is a logical consequence of the messaging that people get that stress is the essential bad thing to avoid do
0: you have some practical tools that you share with people that can help some of us have a mindset shift and and sort of take down this belief that many of us have been living with for so long
1: that is obviously needs to change So the first thing is to redefine stress when you're feeling it as what arises when something that you care about is at stake, adjacent from the definition people usually have, which is toxic things happening in my mind and body that will destroy immune cells and kill brain cells and and make me miserable and I can't deal. And so the very first thing you can do is acknowledge that often this is a sign that you care. And it's a good time to think about who and what you care about most so that in that moment, you can start to make choices about your priorities and your values and make sure that whatever action you take or don't take is really honoring who and what you care about, that you can use stress as a signal to check in with yourself and make choices that you feel good about. So that's the first thing. Also to view stress as energy that you can harness this is really helpful when people are dealing with physical symptoms of stress that are like the classic stress symptoms, like your heart is beating, or you feel that kind of performance pressure. Yeah. Muscle tension and all the classic things that, that often go along with anxiety. And research is really clear about this, that even among people who have been diagnosed with anxiety disorders, like for whom anxiety, yes, legitimately is a barrier and obstacle, that even in those cases, if in moments of anxiety, they can say to themselves, this is physical energy in my body. And even if it feels like I'm about to have a heart attack, I'm not, and this is energy I can harness, that it starts to change what's happening in the body and in the brain to transform whether it's panic or a fight or flight response into a healthier, more useful, energized state that allows you to then connect with others better. Another thing that I'm often encouraging people to do is to realize that a lot of what you feel when you're stressed that we don't like is your body and brain trying to get you to reach out to others.
0: I wanted to ask you about this. so I'm excited you're talking about it.
1: When you're stressed out, you can feel lonely and alone. And it's not because nobody loves you and you are alone and nobody understands. That's sometimes what it feels like, but it often feelings of aloneness or loneliness it's like hunger. Your your brain is like, you need to be around people who care about you. And so it will produce these feelings that can easily be misunderstood as a reason to retreat or isolate yourself. Sometimes feeling overwhelmed also to feel like, I don't know what to do. That is often a signal. Your brain is telling you this is bigger than you. You are not meant to figure it out and make a to-do list. You feel overwhelmed because this situation requires resources Maybe your loved ones, maybe people who've been through it before. So stop trying to make a to do list that solves this and go get support. So, a lot of times when people are feeling most overwhelmed by stress or or paralyzed by stress, it's not because there's something wrong with you. It's not like you are bad at stress, your brain and body nudging you to stop thinking of this as a do it yourself moment and start reaching out to others. And as soon as we do that, again, that also often has very transformative effects. So as soon as you even just label stress as bigger than me, immediately people feel less alone. They feel more willing to ask for help. It changes your brain chemistry in a way that increases hope and and courage and decreases anxiety and fear. It changes what's happening in your cardiovascular and your immune system in ways that are healthier for you. And all of it just nudges you to get support and to team up with others, which is, part of our biological inheritance. That that's how humans deal with stress. We often do it best together.
0: Now, when I experience stress, I might actually stop and say to myself like, "How cool. My body is protecting myself right now." When I'm stressed, my body literally tells me it craves me to put on music and to just dance. And like, I am so excited to talk to you about the science behind this because this has been something that I have used as my tool Since I was a kid, I also am excited to talk to you about movement because I'm that same person that I am not so into exercise per se. Another thing that my husband is just like, he has to exercise and have a ritual of exercise every day to feel good. I need sleep and I need a dance. And it was only until recently that I realized well, exercise is movement to him, and the same things that are helping his brain with the movement. Dance is my movement. And I'm not a good dancer out there, guys. I don't like dance. I just like, I love music and music makes me move and I don't think about it. It's just like, my body is like, I'm stressed. I want to listen to music. Turn on music, dance, and I feel better.
1: You know, this is the number one thing that I have been recommending to people. So I've been doing so many webinars and interviews about the joy of movement. And the, the number one thing is always like, what should somebody do now, whether you're stuck at home or you're just feeling really stressed out, especially people who don't think that they are natural exercisers. And it's exactly what you said. So music is an invitation to move. When you listen to music that has a strong beat or lyrics that inspire you, it actually activates the motor system of your brain and almost compels you to move. At the same time it's doing that, you get an endorphin rush and a little burst of dopamine and adrenaline in ways that make you feel more optimistic, more motivated, braver, happier, um, easier to connect with other people. I mean, this is such an easy hack. Almost everyone I've spoken to could immediately put together a playlist of songs that make them feel empowered. That is the single best thing you can do if you're looking for an easy, inexpensive self-intervention. Make a playlist of songs that you would like to move to or that move you. And when you are feeling down or stressed out, or tired, put on one of those songs and move in any way that the song inspires you to, whether it's dancing or you know, shadow boxing or jumping around or doing yoga stretches. It's just so built into our human biology. It's almost magic. The first thing I do when
0: I wake up, before I talk to anyone, before I even change out of my pajamas... I dance. I just put on music and I dance even in my pajamas. And it feels it just sets me up for the day. And it feels almost. Yeah, it feels like magic, but it feels almost like animalistic, like it's not something I'm thinking about. It's not something I'm judging. I'm not planning for it. I just am like allowing myself to move. And and there's almost also a piece of like sexuality in it. I feel like when you are a, or I can speak for myself as a working parent and doing all the things, like you lose some of that or you look for, I didn't know that would be an added benefit where just doing that, even if it was for half a song or 15 seconds of a song, or sometimes I'm lucky and I get two full songs. I felt like I connected to the feminine part of myself, which had, I felt like I hadn't in a while. It shook out a lot of the stress and I never really looked at any of it as exercise. And so I think that's what I realized kind of is the same, but like I started to realize the same feelings I get from just doing my wake up and dance. When I was in my early twenties, I'd always just say, who cares? Let's dance. It was just my way. And so I love that your new book, Joy of Movement, this book really was the first book for you out of the books you've written that was truly for yourself and the first book that you weren't asked to write. And, you know, you talk about this idea of most, you know, people know of this idea of a runner's high. And- you kind of say that different forms of exercise mimic like different mind altering drugs
1: it's much more accurate to say that mind altering drugs mimic the effect of different types of movement you don't have a brain that like evolved to respond to drugs you have a brain that has all these different capacities to help you survive and joy is one of our survival mechanisms and and pleasure and self-transcendence is a survival mechanism, the ability to feel connected to others, to feel unity when in nature. These are like the natural essential joys that humans are evolved to have because it helps us survive as individuals and as a, a social species. And drugs that have become popular are often are popular because they mimic the natural capacity for joy. And what so what I found so interesting in writing this book it's not even that like movement mimics those natural highs. Movement is is often the vehicle for those natural human joys. It is the easiest vehicle through which humans can experience self-transcendence or celebration, appreciative joy, which is like seeing the good in others and being uplifted by that. The endorphin endocannabinoid rush of persistence and the, the pleasures of enduring teamwork cooperation. And that's why. You know, somebody going for a run in nature can have these incredible spiritual experiences, or it can be a really positive treatment for depression because these experiences are changing your brain chemistry. They are mind altering in ways as powerful as any drug, but they do it in a way that is really accessible and accessible to people in, in any body. One of the things that I, I often have to clarify is because people think, oh, you mean like the, you know, the young 20, 30-year-old runner without injuries who has the use of every part of their body and is a certain size and you know, grew up as an athlete. I'm like, no, in the book, I'm talking about people in wheelchairs with partial paralysis, people recovering from strokes, people with Parkinson's disease, people with severe mental health challenges, people of all sizes, including people in large bodies who are not exercising to lose weight, but because they love how they feel and how they feel about themselves when they move their bodies. I'm even talking about people at end of life in hospice care, choosing to to move their bodies because it helps them feel alive.
0: I think that's so interesting and it's so unique for all of us. Like I had mentioned, like my movement tool is so different than my husband's, is so different than my parents, is so different than my friends. And maybe there's some people where my movement tool is actually really similar. And, you know, and I have found those people too. And it's really fun to move with them. Okay, so every single podcast episode of Looking Up, we end with pulling a card from my Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards. If you were with me, you would choose your own. But since you're not, I'm choosing one for you at random. And maybe you'll get the dancing card. That's my
1: favorite one. I often feel like I love this sort of game. The universe always gives you exactly what you need. I know. It's true. I love this. So I just, I trust you. You're going to get the card. I am.
0: Okay. This is your card. Take a moment to accept responsibility for the good things and for the not so ideal things. You may not be able to control all the things that go on during your life, but you can control how you choose to experience them. Think about the statement, I am responsible for me. Try and see if you can be inspired and empowered by this statement.
1: So true. That's a really good summary for a lot of the things we've been talking about today and a really good reminder for me. That's exactly how I'm feeling right now. It's like how to move from a place of resentment about things that you can't control, that I can't control, things that I, yeah, that's, it's a perfect card for me. So I will.
0: I had the best time chatting with you and learning from you and connecting with you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Day" by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your
1: weekly dose of optimism.